Well, I headed out for a run and I took two steps and I stopped because my legs were hurting so bad, were cramping so bad that I literally couldn't take another step running. See, I was starting the, the run leg to the first Ironman triathlon that I did several years ago. So that day, I had already swum 2.4 miles, gone for a little 112-mile bike ride through the woods, and I was setting out for a little jog of 26.2 miles. I looked down at my watch, and it was exactly 4 p.m. In my mind, I knew I had been moving, exercising for nine straight hours. But what that also knew is I knew I had eight hours till the midnight cutoff when the last finisher could go through. What does someone do when they need to run a marathon and they can't actually run? They just start moving down the road. People uh, have often asked me, when you're doing events like that, where you're out there for hours at a time, like what's, what's going through your head? What do you think about? I can tell you that evening as I headed out for that marathon, one thought went through my head over and over and over again, and it was this, don't stop moving. Don't stop moving. Because if you sit down, you're not going to want to get up. If you lay down, you're definitely not getting up. Just keep moving. In every Ironman uh, athlete guide, there's rules and regulations for each leg. The first rule for the run is this. It says athletes may run, walk, or crawl. Now, you may think that's hyperbole, but it actually references back to 1982 in the Ironman World Championships when the women's race leader was in the last mile of her race. She had swum two miles, biked over 100, had run over 25 miles, and her body just stopped working. She kept falling to the ground and would get back up and kept stumbling forward as her lead was diminishing. And with 20 feet to go in the race, she fell down and couldn't get back up. So what did she do? She crawled across the finish line. Just don't stop moving. I made that commitment to myself, just don't stop moving, just keep going. And it replayed over and over in my head tonight, that night, seven and a half hours later, less than 30 minutes before the cutoff time, I was able to cross that finish line. But it's because I made that commitment to no matter what happens, just to keep going. See, there's times in life as Christians where we want to just stop, where we just want to give it up. It's getting too hard. Just, just stop everything that's going on and make it easier. But there's commitments that we can make as Christians that can sustain us through anything and everything that may come our way. Commitments that we should each have, if you're a follower of God here this morning, that we should have in our lives that will sustain us and motivate us and keep us going no matter what may happen in our lives. Today we're going to look at three necessary commitments of every Christian. Three necessary commitments of every Christian. Our sermon text was just read for us this morning. Um, we're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. If, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you um, to open them as we study together. 
Matthew chapter 7. Our text this morning starts in verses 7 and 8. It says this. It was just read for us. I'll read it again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. The first necessary commitment that every Christian should make, the first necessary commitment is don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. This passage starts with three imperatives in verse 7. Ask. It's a command. Seek. Knock. But it's an assurance as well, multiple times throughout. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And again, verse 8 repeats the assurance that we can have in prayer. Anyone who asks will receive. Anyone who seeks finds, and anyone who knocks will be open. But the implications of this action, of asking for something, of seeking and knocking, is not a one-time thing. What Jesus is encouraging his listeners to is this, to pray and to keep on praying, to persevere in your prayers. In the previous chapter, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, he highlighted for us in the Lord's Prayer the content of our prayers. How should we pray when we pray to God? In this passage, Jesus talks about our responsibility when it comes to prayer. What should we be doing? How often should we pray? The passage could very easily say, ask, keep asking, and don't stop asking. Seek, keep seeking, and don't stop seeking. Knock, keep knocking, and don't stop knocking. See, persistence in prayer is highlighted throughout the Bible. It's seen not just here in Matthew chapter 7, but it's seen all over throughout Scripture. One example is in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus says this. He said to him, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So this friend has a problem. Someone's come to him late at night on their journey. And in their culture, hospitality was of utmost importance. But they didn't have 24-hour jewel in Walgreens. So what is one to do when you're out of food and you have unexpected company? You go ask your neighbors. And the implication here isn't that he just showed up once and he said, hey, can I have some food? And he was like, yeah, this is really inconvenient, but I'm going to do it. He shows up and he says, hey, I need some food. The neighbor goes, go away. He goes, I need some food. My kids are sleeping. And the guy's like, they're all going to be awake pretty soon if you don't get up and get me some food. I need some food. I'm not going to stop asking. He's going to persist in this request. Jesus tells another example of this in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, he says this parable. He said, I told, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. 
for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night, persistent asking? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus asks that question because the persistence of our prayers is often a marker of our own spiritual maturity. You show me someone who seeks God's face regularly, who doesn't quit praying, who continues to strive and seeks God's face no matter what happens in their life, and you showed me someone who's growing into spiritual maturity in their life. But why does God expect us to pray persistently? Is it when we prayed the first 20 times it hit the ceiling or his to-do list was so long he kind of hushed you to the side and maybe if you keep asking, he'll finally hear you? No, it's not that. God hears every prayer. But I think when we realize and remind ourselves of what prayer is, we'll start to realize why we're told to pray persistently. See, prayer is not to line God up to our will. But the purpose of prayer is to line up ourselves to God's will. And the command to pray persistently, that this need that each and every believer has, makes us rely on God every single day, which if you think about it, is the whole point of prayer in and of itself. That we're seeking help because we cannot do it ourselves. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Some of you may be discouraged because you've been praying for something for a long time and God hasn't answered it yet. Don't stop praying. When I was young, in elementary school, I found out that a family member, someone in my life, um, had told my parents that they weren't a Christian. They didn't believe in God and they hadn't wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And I grew up in a, in a mostly Christian home. Most of my immediate and extended family were Christians. And so I remember when I was young, I decided I wanted to start praying for this family member. I started praying, and I remember I was at a Christian school at the time, and when prayer requests were asked for, I remember always asking, can we pray for this person because they don't know Jesus? And I would say, I wish I could say I've prayed for this person every single day, but I haven't. I've forgotten. But it's been a regular period of my life where I spent praying for him. Just this past year, I found out that this person that I've been praying for for over 20 years, through a series of circumstances that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with God, placed their faith and trust in Jesus and is active in their local church and is walking with God. And this is, yeah, it's amazing. This experience reminded me of two things in my life. First, when we pray persistently, the overwhelming joy that we have when God answers. When we pray persistently and we see God answer something, not the day we pray it, but we see it a decade later, the overwhelming joy that that can bring in our hearts and in our lives. But second was this. 
is I thought to myself, I've been walking with God for most of my life. And I don't want to hold myself up here as an example of like, I have this down. Because the reality is I was struck with this. Why haven't I seen more of this in my life? Who, who haven't I been praying for? What haven't I been seeking God for? Because I should have more examples in my life of things that I've been praying persistently for and seen God answer. And I challenged myself, who else should I be praying for? What else in my life should I be praying for persistently? See, there's many reasons that Christians sometimes can be upset about what seems to be, from their perspective, unanswered prayer. They pray to God and they don't see anything happen. And there's many reasons, I think, that that we can have unanswered prayer. But one of the biggest reasons that we don't see answers to prayer is this. We stop praying. One of the biggest reasons we don't see answers to prayer is this. We stop praying. If you just pray for something one time, and 15 years later God answers that prayer request, you won't even remember praying for it. You will have no idea of what happened, and you won't see God answer your prayer. But when Christians commit to praying persistently, they start to see God answer in their lives as they continue to seek his face over and over and over again. So can I encourage you this morning, don't stop praying. Some of you have been praying for family members for decades. Don't stop praying. Some of you have been going through relational issues and other things in your life and you've been asking God to provide and you're not sure what's going to happen. Don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking God's face. Don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. This command for us is to continue to seek him in prayer. The text continues in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. It says this, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? First, the command is don't stop praying. The second commitment that every Christian needs to make is this, don't stop trusting. Don't stop trusting in God. As a basis for why we can trust God, Jesus gives us an an example that in their time would have been very easy for them to understand. Bread and fish were the staple of their diet. It was kind of like their deep dish pizza and hot dogs. It's what they knew. It was the go-to. And he says this, if a son asks a father for a piece of bread, will he instead give him a rock or a fish and give him a snake? And the answer is no, of course he won't do that. And then he argues from the lesser to the greater. He says this, even if a parent is evil, which compared to God, every parent is evil. Every parent is so sinful and broken that compared to God, that is the reality of it. If an evil parent knows how to give a good gift, how much more will the perfect father in heaven give good gifts to his children? This has been a key theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount that he keeps coming back to talking about the fatherhood of God as the basis for why we can trust 
him. As God's children, though, we sometimes struggle with this. And we think that when God doesn't answer, when God says no to something, that it often means he doesn't care about us or doesn't love us like how we thought. We struggle, I think, a lot of times with with knowing that God has our best in mind. I think we know this in our heads, but experientially, we struggle with this a lot when we're told no by God. See, but if you think about it, earthly parents tell their kids no all the time, and they do it because they want what's best for their children. They have something better in mind than what the kids are asking for. Suppose your seven-year-old said, Mom, I want to drive us to church today. She would say no, right? She has the best in mind for all parties involved. Mom, I want to skip school. Well, no, you're not skipping school. Oh, let's just stay in summer vacation forever. Great idea. No, you're going back to school when it starts, right? Over and over again, parents tell kids no because they have something better, a better gift in mind than what the child could actually conceive of. And I find it personally extremely comforting that God says no to us. That God says no to our prayers. Like, think of the contrary on what would happen if God just answered yes to all our prayers. I was reminded this week, um, as I was thinking about this, of a, a film that came out many years ago called Bruce Almighty, where, where an actor becomes God in the movie, and he's kind of given all the responsibilities of God for a season. And suddenly voices start filling his head of all the prayers. And so he files them into emails and he tries to do it and realizing there's way more prayer here than I could ever get to on my own. So he does answer all and he just types yes. So every prayer that was prayed, he just answered, God just answered yes to, suppose it. A few scenes later is at a party and we overhear conversations. One guy tells his friend, hey, my stock tripled in value today. How amazing is that? We hear someone say to a man, you look a little taller. And the guy goes, I am taller. We, talk, we hear a dad talk about his kid throwing a no-hitter. And my favorite is a person exclaims loudly how they lost 47 pounds on the Krispy Kreme diet. <laughs> God will not always say yes to our prayers. But God will always give us what's best for us. God is a good father. He's the perfect father, and he wants to give good gifts to his children. The reality is God's no is a yes to something better. God's no is a yes to something even better. And sometimes it's hard for us to get this because we want what we want, and we don't catch a glimpse of what God could have. And we need to learn as followers of Jesus to commit to trusting him. To trust him that when you pray and you think it's the right request and God says no, to trust that he actually has something better for you. I remember when I was in eighth grade in junior high, my family told me that at the end of that school year, we were going to be moving from Southern California to the Midwest. I didn't want to move. I wasn't excited. Now, maybe you love the Midwest and you're born and raised here, and you're like, the Midwest is great. How, how does Southern California have anything on the Midwest? Well, three things pop to mind right away. <laughs> December, January, and February. 
You know these beautiful days that we've had this week, the 75 and sunny? You know what I called that growing up? Winter. That, that's a January afternoon in Southern California. And I did not want to move. I'm like, what, what junior hire is like, you know it would be great. Let's start high school with no friends. That sounds awesome. And so I started praying that God wouldn't let our family move. In my perspective, it was the good prayer. It was right. This is what I thought I needed to pray. And I prayed fervently. I prayed passionately. I prayed with tears. God, don't let my family move. I want to stay here. I don't want to move. But we moved. And there was a period in my life in high school where I struggled with a lot of bitterness and anger because God told me no. And I didn't realize that he actually had something better for me than what I had imagined myself. You see, the reality is if God had said yes to that, I would have probably never come to the Midwest and moved to Chicago for school. If I hadn't moved to Chicago for school, I wouldn't have started coming to this church. If I wouldn't have started coming to this church, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have gotten this amazing privilege to serve as a pastor here for the last 10 years. God had something beyond my imagination in mind when he told me no. God's no is always a yes to something better. So if you're praying right now and God says no, learn to trust him. Learn to trust him. Don't stop trusting him that his yes is actually, his no, excuse me, is a yes to something even better in your life. This also teaches us when we reflect on the fatherhood of God in prayer, that since we have such a father who wants to give us good gifts, this should motivate us to ask God for great things in our life. If we have a perfect father who wants to give you good gifts, why wouldn't we ask for them? Why wouldn't we ask for great things? Because he wants to give them to us. Last month, I was at a conference with several other pastors here in Chicago. And Luis Palau um, spoke at the opening session via video. And Pastor Ed, if you are here a few weeks ago, shared with you how Luis Palau has cancer and is likely to, to meet the Lord soon. And at the end of, of his time with us, he said these words to a group of a couple hundred pastors sitting there. He said, I pray that God would use you to reach, and in my head, he's going to say many people. Because that's what I would say. Luis Palau says, I pray that God would use you to reach millions of people for Jesus. And it struck me, that man knows how to pray for good things from God. He knows how to pray for great things from God. He knows God's heart is for his children, and he's not scared to approach God and ask for great things to be done in our world. And so I've been asking myself this question the last couple months that I want to ask you. Are your prayers too small? Are your prayers too small? Sometimes we forget the goodness of God, the generosity of his heart, that he wants to give you every good and perfect gift if only you would ask of him. Are your prayers too small? We need people who are committed to audaciously ask God for great things. Why can we be assured that he will answer and give us these good gifts if we ask of him? It's because he's already given us the best gift of all, himself. Christianity starts with an audacious ask of God, and that's this. Forgive my sin. 
There's nothing so bold as to approach a holy God and ask that, yet we're assured in Scripture that salvation is a gift of God, and all we have to do is trust in Jesus and ask for that, and he'll give it to us. If you're not a Christian this morning, that invitation is open to you today, right now, to ask God, the creator of the world, the holy God, for forgiveness, and he will give it when you trust in Jesus. And for the rest of us who already have asked God for forgiveness, are we asking God for great things in our world? Are you asking God to use you in a great way in your neighborhood, in your city? Are we asking that God would use this church in a great way to change our world? He wants to use us. He wants to give us good gifts. If only we would ask and trust that he would provide. The passage continues. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The third necessary command of every Christian, the third necessary commitment is don't stop loving. Don't stop loving. God has called us to this command, and we should not stop loving the people around us. This verse, chapter 7, verse 12, is a summary, kind of, as we're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 5, verse 17, which kind of kicked off the main section of it, chapter 5, verse 17 says, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he talks about throughout chapters 5 and 6 how he is the fulfillment. And then at the end of this section in chapter 7, he says this, I'm the fulfillment of the law. You want to know everything that the law and the prophets teach. Do to others what you would want done for yourself. Love others self-sacrificially and radically. That's what it comes down to. Now, what is Jesus not saying in this passage? He's not saying that we can ignore the Old Testament and study it because we've got the main ethical command right before us. He's not saying that we should carry out this command so that others would do it back to us. If I do to you what I want done, then you have to do it back to me. No, but this command is profound and yet simple. See, it's interesting, scholars note, that it was seen, a command like this, as we know, as the golden rule, was seen throughout other religions, even back in Jesus' time. But they point out Jesus was the only one who spoke it in the positive. So most people would say, do not do to others what you would also not want done to you. But Jesus, as he always has a higher standard through all of the Sermon on the Mount, says, not just that, but you do to others what you also would want done to yourself. It's a subtle but a significant shift in mindset that puts Christians in the action place to reach out and show love towards other people. See, in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the book, when Jesus talks about who are the true Christians, who really understands his message and those who don't, it's known as the Sermon of the Sheep and the Goats. Notice that the sermon, it talks about those who know Jesus truly are those who lived out this command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because what is the evidence of their faith? He says, you were, saw the hungry and you gave them something to eat. You saw the thirsty, you gave them something to drink. You saw those who were naked and you clothed them. You saw the stranger, you took them in. See, they saw someone and said, if I was hungry, what would I want done? I would want someone to feed me. And that's what they did to others. 
Christians who are looking at the world and the people around them and thinking, how can I love this person? This idea that love fulfills all of the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, is seen repeatedly throughout Scripture. Just a few examples. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, he says this, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what as Christians we are called to. Following God is not just a right knowledge, but it's right living in our world. And see, the reality is when we understand and live out this principle of radical, self-sacrificial, other-centered love, it has great power. See, Christian love has the power to change the world. Christian love has the power to change the world because Jesus is seen in our love to others and in our love towards other people. That's why Jesus said, how will people know you follow me? By your love. That's the distinctive mark of Christians. Sometimes we think we have love down because we're good at loving those inside our walls. But think for a second, what do people, the three million people who aren't here this morning, think of us? Do they know us for our love? Or do they know us for something else? Too often Christians are quick to give our opinions and stingy in showing love towards others. We're quick to criticize but slow to show compassion towards those who need it. But Christians should show love because Christian love has the power to change the world. Who do you need to show this kind of love to in your life? Oftentimes it starts closest to home. If you're a spouse, do unto your husband or wife as you would have them do unto you. If you live at home with your parents, do to your brother or sister as you would have them do unto you. Treat your coworker how you would want them to treat you. Love your neighbor how you would want them to love you. The applications to this verse are countless, but the commitment is the same. Don't stop loving. These three commitments should be true of every Christian. Don't stop praying. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop loving. Several years ago, uh, there was two girls in fifth grade who met here at a Chicago public school and quickly became best friends. One of them was born and raised, and this girl grew up in this church her whole life. But her friends never really attended church regularly and didn't come to any church. And so this girl decided, hey, I'm going to start loving and praying and inviting this friend here to Moody Church and see what God could do. And so her friend came to some of the children's ministry activities here at our church and had a great time, loved it, but didn't really change her life. In junior high, this girl committed to praying 
for her friend, to trusting God, to loving her friend, continued to invite her here to Moody Church. Her friend would come, went on some of the youth retreats, went to summer camps, had a lot of fun, made a lot of friends. But it didn't really change a lot in her life. When they went to high school, as is often the case here in Chicago, they went to different selective enrollment high schools. They didn't see each other very regularly. But this girl made a commitment, even though I don't see her regularly, I'm not going to stop praying for her. I'm not going to stop trusting God, and I'm certainly not going to stop showing her love however I can. And she continued to pray throughout high school, continued to trust, continued to love her all the way through high school. And they would invite her here to this church. And she would come in high school to some of the events and activities and would have fun. But it didn't really change her life. But this girl continued to pray, continued to love for her friend. They were done with high school. They're about to go to different colleges on different sides of the country. But this girl continued to pray, continued to trust, continued to love. And the summer before they left for each of their colleges, she was invited on a Moody Church missions trip down with the youth group to, to Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina to help with some of the cleanup for those who had lost so much down there. And after over eight years, she had prayed, she had trusted, she had loved her friend. After over eight years, because a teenager at this church prayed and loved, she saw her friend place her faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Amazing what God can do through the prayers of teenagers, of you and I. That story for me is even more amazing. Because that friend, that a girl at this church, said, I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop trusting. I'm not going to stop loving. That friend who was prayed for by a teenager at this church for eight years, I met her in college and she's been my wife for eight years. God uses prayer. God uses Christians who love the people around them. And I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons that my wife is walking with God today is because someone committed to praying for her, to not stop praying, to trusting God, and to always showing her love. Who do you need to pray for? Don't stop. What do you need to trust God in? Don't stop trusting him. Who do you need to love? Don't stop loving them. God, we thank you that you are a good and perfect father. That we can come to you because you have first loved us with every request, every need of our hearts. God, for those of us who are in a season where it seems like you're telling us no, help us to trust you. For those of us who want to quit and we, we're so fed up, help us to keep praying. God, give us the ability to show radical, self-sacrificial love to the people in our lives. God, we pray for bold things. We pray for great things. God, use this church to reach this city. Use us that through our prayers, through our love, many people, millions of people 
we'll come to know you. God, you're a father who gives us good gifts. We come to you today in the name of Jesus.